0: Hello, hello, hello. I did not adjust the mic correctly before I started. Disaster. Okay. Welcome back to Sheep Thrills. My name is Emily Lamb. Yeah, welcome back, guys. We are 28 days from Election Day. (sighs) 28 days until Election Day. 28 sleeps. We are just going through it. Um, So, I don't even know. I don't even know what to say. We're in October. We're well into October at this point. Um, We've got. October surprises like crazy left and right. We are deep into election season. Um, and so things are really, really starting to pick up in one of the longest election cycles I am conscious of. Um, both all of that being said, Today, on today's episode, we are going to give a little bit of an update on midterm current events, um, as I've done for the past couple episodes. Um, we're also going to talk about some Senate races, some governor's races, and also just like a general overview on each camp's strategy going into the final stretch of election season. Um, Additionally, we are going to talk about the Los Angeles City Council scandal that just came out over the past couple days. And then we are going to get into some of the ongoing unrest that's going on in Iran. Um, So a lot to talk about today, a lot going on in the world. Yeah, so we're just going to jump right into it. So first of all, midterm updates. Um, So because we are Three weeks, four weeks out, three episodes out, four weeks out from Election Day. Um, And then, you know, we have got, that's going to be the main thing that I'm focusing on kind of going forward. I'm going to spend a good chunk of the next couple shows each week talking about some of the biggest stories in different races. Um, There's always stuff to talk about, but it's never enough to, like, have its own chunk. Um, So welcome to a new, new section of Sheep Thrills, a new segment, if you will. Midterm madness. Nice. Everyone like that? I I need, again, going back to, I need a live studio audience. I need somebody to just sit next to me and, like, laugh and clap. That's fine. It's okay. So... First of all, we are going to talk about the Ohio Senate debate that happened um, a couple days ago. I believe it was Monday night. All the days blend together because it's midterms, both in the academic sense and the political sense. Do you see what I did there? Um, so this debate, again, we talked about this race a little bit last week, um, but it is Tim Ryan versus J.D. Vance. Tim Ryan is a very kind of moderate centrist um member of, former, I guess, former member of the House now, Um, and J.D. Vance is a little bit more of an extreme kind of right-wing Silicon Valley social justice guy, Um, so it's kind of this, this race that was not supposed to be super competitive just because Ohio, historically, at least in the past several years, has not been the most competitive state in the world, even though it still has that, like, swing state classification, it is not necessarily that way anymore in any kind of, like, real sense. But this race again has been more competitive than we thought it was actually going to be. Um, so this debate has been was pretty interesting. There was like a lot of you know a lot of really good one-liners that are on Twitter, and I'll play a couple of those. Um, but Tim Ryan has this very interesting responsibility here, this very interesting campaign strategy, where he has to be very careful with how he's just annihilating JD Vance, because um, again, even though the race is more competitive than we thought it was going to be from the outset Tim Ryan probably can't win without at least some Trump support and he's not so he's certainly not going to get any kind of mandate without at least somewhat appealing to the maga e people um so you know he's not gonna have as much luck as other candidates particularly other senatorial candidates like a John Fetterman who can just blast MAGA extremism and then go about their lives um, rather he does kind of have to toe that line in a pretty considerable way so he's not spending as much time focusing on the democracy issues that we talked about last week he's not spending as much time talking about january 6th he is not having joe biden or other surrogates come to campaign for him as far as i'm aware um at least kind of the more hyper political surrogates he is not having uh come campaign although i'm sure there are a couple um who are campaigning for him so again Uh, you know, Ohio is not necessarily, especially rural Ohio, is not the place where conversations around democracy preservation are going to play super well, Um, you know, particularly conservative kind of rust belty areas. They are really focusing on um, the economic issues, and they're not really focusing on much else. And so that is really where Tim Ryan is trying to keep the debate Um, And we have J.D. Vance, of course, every time he does kind of try to stray over that line and say, well, you don't even know what the typical Ohioan, I hope that's the right word, um, Ohioan is looking for. You don't know actually what they want. Um, So that's a very interesting kind of dynamic there that makes it different from other races, because even other conservative states, like even in Georgia, Warnock is a pretty progressive guy. And so he is kind of he is allowing himself to be more progressive with his campaign strategy, Tim Ryan is very much staying extremely middle of the road. Um, So it's interesting to see kind of the differences between those two campaigns in those two swingy conservative states because they're conservative in different ways, they're conservative for different reasons Um, and thus those Democratic candidates have to campaign in different ways, which is very interesting. Um, So I'm gonna play a little clip from the debate um it is very it's it's you know it's one it's it's a political debate so there's always these one-liners that those candidates are just so excited to drop they are just ready to go they're so thrilled um but everyone has been retweeting this one and I think it's pretty fun so I'm going to play it for you I am going to play it for you now. I do, however, have to plug in the adapter. (laughs) Everything's going really well, guys. Oh, man, oh, man. Give me just, like, two seconds. Well, anyway, while I'm doing this, we're going to talk about what the clip actually talks about. Basically, as I talked about a little bit last week, I think I mentioned this, um, JD Vance, as we talked about, um, started a nonprofit in Ohio after his um after his book came out after he kind of he wanted to give back to the community um and basically the nonprofit lasted for like 2 years didn't really do much dissolved it had a lot to do with the o- opioid crisis um in Ohio but actually like had somebody from big pharma as a main sponsor so all in all it was just like not it was like a pretty controversial program um and that has been a lot of the source of criticism against J.D. Vance is just him, you know, him using his nonprofit experience as this big reason to, to vote for him and to know that he is, uh, you know, a real Ohio and he really supports the people, this, that, the other thing. Is that necessarily truth? Now let's hear what Tim Ryan has to say about it. You know what I haven't done? I didn't start a fake nonprofit pretending like I was going to help people with addiction like J.D. Vance did. Literally started a nonprofit and didn't spend one nickel on anybody. In fact, he brought in somebody from Purdue Pharma to be the spokesperson for the nonprofit. The same drug company, Big Pharma, the big drug company that had all the pill mills going, got everybody addicted, mm. one million people died, JD. Is- One million people died, and you started a nonprofit to try to take advantage of people in Ohio, and you know what? All you did with it was launch your political career. His- so you know that's a that's a banger. Um, poor JD looks very uncomfortable. I my favorite thing about watching debates is looking at the other person's face while they're just getting absolutely destroyed. It's it's very fun to me. Um, also, tangential but makes me laugh. Um, they're matching. Tim Ryan and J.D. Vance are absolutely matching. They're both wearing navy blue suits, white shirts, red ties. Like, did they coordinate that in advance? Did they want to match? I love it. Anyway, so I just wanted to, to, to show that little clip. Um, very interesting. Because then there's also this dynamic going on, this tension well, this tension in a lot of races and in kind of politics in general right now between the kind of career politician and the businessman um, and which is necessarily like the most effective person to be running a government. Um, and, and, you know, you probably I tend to think that having a knowledge of government and the legislative process is an important thing for um, Running a government, but maybe that's just me, because um, I think I think I've, I've talked about this before. I think, but there is a difference between running a business and running a um, running a country or running a state or running a, a town. Uh, there are two different things. Whatever. That's tangential, but still. Um, so anyway, that 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 kind of takedown of. Tim or JD Vance is going pretty viral, kind of fun, um, but of course, as with these debates, um, everyone has their own expectation setting and level setting as they go into it. And JD Vance entered the debate with very low expectations, um, and of course, Tim Ryan entered the debate with very high expectations. So they only fulfilled the expectations that they were going to fulfill. And then there's also the matter of like, how important is a debate in terms of like the long-term ramifications of the race frankly like not that significant um you know these clips that are getting retweeted and retweeted it's all the same 10 people who are watching them over and over again Um, it's not necessarily going super outside that bubble Although, again, in that handful of undecideds in Ohio, this this could be a fairly significant thing for them. Um, I think especially like having having all of the information about both candidates kind of laid out in front of them, clear to say, that's going to be pretty important. But regardless, that is the Ohio Senate race. And now we're going to move on to talking really briefly about the Arizona Senate race. Um, so these candidates actually are not going to be debating. Um, in a twist from twist and turn from usual, it's actually the Democrat uh, Katie Hobbs who is choosing not to debate the Republican Kari Lake. I um, actually read a really interesting, I really did not know much about Kari Lake and I read a really interesting profile about her in The Atlantic, which I will link somewhere online. Um, and so again, I really didn't know much about her, but this, this, this article basically makes it out that she is, like, the, like, the queen of MAGA, you know, like, she is, like, the, the female heir apparent of the MAGA movement, um, and she is kind of, like, adopting all of the kind of negative Trump-isms and adapting them into, like, more acceptable, like, feminine qualities, and this is a very interesting thing, and again, like, whatever, sort of tangential from talking just about the Arizona um, Senate race, or, oh, this is a governor's race. I'm, excuse me, that's my bad. Sorry. Um, But just kind of in general, something that I've been reading about and, like, observing a lot about in terms of this midterm cycle, we obviously know that gender issues are a very important issue on the ballot in a lot of states, not the least of which includes Arizona. Um, we know that abortion is on the ballot. We know that women are coming out and they are voting on issues of abortion, birth control, all of those things that, that affect them directly. But also, kind of tangentially, there's this interesting conversation about how gender roles are kind of playing a significant part in election strategy, um, which is very interesting that we, like, we... We, you, you think we've kind of moved away from kind of slotting candidates into those different roles. But we do kind of see this evidence of the fact that, A, a lot of conservative Republican candidates are really trying to, you know, beef themselves up as, like, macho alpha males, et cetera, et cetera, while a lot of female candidates are really trying to slot themselves into this role of, like, nurturing, motherly candidate that you know they're gonna protect people. Um and it's it's very interesting to see how those dynamics are playing out um in male female races where you do have like an angry, kind of aggressive man on one side and like a nurturing female kind of as the the the, the foil on the other side. But then also kind of seeing those things take place in female on female races, like in Arizona, where you do have two female candidates who are both representing different types of femininity and different types, different versions of womanhood and trying to prove to the voters which brand of womanhood is better, right? Is the kind of democratic liberal womanhood superior to conservative kind of pro-life womanhood? Um, And the way that both of those candidates, both those types of candidates are kind of reinventing what femininity looks like is a very interesting thing that I do think is gonna get studied more in the future and with, like, what is the most effective thing here and how did abortion and how did abortion rights play into the creation of those new archetypes. So interesting and so weird. And probably a feminist theory rant you did not think you were gonna be getting today but you got it, and I hope that you enjoyed it. Moving on from that, Kari Lake, this kind of new version of like conservative, well, maybe not even new, but old, but yeah, I don't know, whatever. New version of MAGA, conservative femininity, being able to take the aggressive language and aggressive ideals and rhetoric of Trump MAGAism and recreate it into something that's more easily consumable by people. It's much easier to listen to a woman kind of talk about these things in an eloquent way than it is to listen to Donald Trump, like, scream and rave about, like, stabbings and, like, illegal immigrants. Um, so it's a, she is a lot more threatening in a debate situation than Donald Trump because she is more convincing. Um, she's has a lot more kind of going for her in these situations um, so she is also you know an election denier this that the other thing um, and so Katie Hobbs did decide not to debate her basically saying that she's gonna kind of like turn it into a circus and it was gonna be all election denial this that um, you know I think she's probably right about that I think that debating a candidate like Carly Lake like Donald Trump you're not really gonna get anywhere Candidates aren't going to get anything. The candidate or the candidates aren't going to get anything out of it. The voters are just going to be frustrated, and they're not really going to like learn much about the candidates. Um, and so I just like think for like the general public, these kinds of debates probably aren't the best thing. Optically for Katie Hobbs doesn't look great, um, especially because I think nationally, the Democrats have really again because the Democrats have really been trying to push the idea. That they are the pro-democracy party Uh, and part of being pro-democracy is debating and and kind of being public with um your viewpoints and your positions and not being able to not like being afraid to to shy away from that or not shying away from that um and so i think that that does kind of put a bit of a damper on her overall argument for why she should be elected at least if you look at her role in the kind of like national landscape, the national ecosystem. Um, So it's interesting, but both candidates were interviewed um, back to back over the weekend. And they were basically focusing on immigration and abortion. Theoretically, both social issues that should kind of go towards the Democrats. But as we know, political science is not in fact a science, so we don't really know. Um, But there, you know, it's a lot of political rhetoric being thrown back and forth. It's a very vitriolic race. I'm not sure if that's because of the candidates or because of the issues or just because of, like, the political makeup of Arizona. Um, but it was, it was a lot more aggressive than I think... Well, I guess they're all aggressive. So I don't know why I'm even saying that. Whatever, I'm just going to move on. Um, Katie Hobbs also, just in general, when we look at kind of, like, the rankings of the kind of Democratic set of candidates this cycle... She's kind of rated in like the lower third, um, so like if we're if we're losing a seat, if we're losing a governorship, it might be over there. Um, but again, just like a very interesting thing to think about, thing to talk about in terms of gender, in terms of policy, kind of how this how these communication strategies are, are changing over time, and of course something that we will revisit um, as we look over the next three weeks, and of course as we analyze. As as When we we do a retrospective on midterms, when we look back on what strategies were effective, who won, why they won, by what margins they won, um, we're going to be able to kind of tease out a lot of those issues a lot better. So something to look forward to in a couple weeks. Um, Moving on. Georgia updates. We talked about Georgia a lot last week, so I'm not going to spend – well, I'm not going to spend too much time on the Georgia Senate race, but um, regardless – It does appear that the Republican institution is sticking with Herschel Walker. Shocking, but whatever, I guess, I don't really know. Um, It really does appear that the Republicans are looking to win at whatever cost, don't really care one way or the other, why or how or who or what, Um, just as long as they get a majority in the Senate, they do not care about kind of all of the scandals that are Currently riding that race. Um, and that's, of course, the Republican institution. And when the Republican institution kind of gives the justification to the Republican electorate, that is kind of the way that that's going to go. Um, but uh, Warnock is still pulling ahead of Herschel Walker, so it might all just be kind of moot that, you know, he's not losing anybody, but he's not gaining anybody. So it's just kind of is what it is at this point. Um, but Beyond the Senate race, I did want to talk a little bit about the um, Georgia gubernatorial race that's going on right now as well. Haven't touched much on this, um, but I do think it's pretty interesting to talk about. Um, So this, of course, is Stacey Abrams, um, and she is running against the incumbent Brian Kemp, who, of course, had all of his issues with Donald Trump. Um, And so he has a very interesting relationship with MAGAism with the Republican Party. Um, And of course, Stacey Abrams is kind of the darling sweetheart (laughs) of the Democratic Party. Um, So it's that very interesting dynamic there of like an institutionalized Democrat versus a formerly institutionalized Republican who might be kind of on the outs um, with the party as it stands, assuming that you kind of believe that the party belongs to Donald Trump. Whatever. If that is something you believe, that is what you believe. Um, which isn't necessarily wrong. I don't know why I said it like that, but something we can debate. Um, so she has been, obviously Stacey Abrams has been extremely credited with working to build the base of voters that helps to deliver both the White House and the Senate. Um, obviously the Georgia runoffs were crazy. This like huge moment in political history, um, probably why, The Democrats were able to accomplish anything over the past two years. Stacey Abrams gets a lot of credit for that. Um, But now the question is whether or not she's able to recreate that magic in Georgia for herself as opposed to for another candidate. Um, So recent polling has shown that she's trailing Brian Kemp. um, And this is also the second time that she's run against him. She ran against him in 2017, I guess, or maybe it was 2016. No, it would have been 2017. Okay. Dude, time is insane. Um, so, yeah, she was, so she's trailing Brian Kemp, but again, last time she ran against him, she was only 1.4 points away from being the first black female governor in the nation. Um, and so that, that really is not a huge margin, especially in a state like Georgia, where back then, back then, a million years ago, back when I had hope in my eyes... Um, was a lot more um, conservative, a lot more of like a safe red state. Obviously now it's more purple, um, especially because of the two Democratic senators that they do have now. Um, And so basically what's the the indication is that she's struggling to replicate the same level of black support that she was able to garner in 2018. I did actually write the date down of her last race against Brian Kemp, it was 2018. I need to just read my notes better. Um, Also significantly, not only is she trailing Brian Kemp right now, but she's also projected a few points behind Warnock. So why? Um, Is it A, because of better candidate quality on the Republican side? People respect Brian Kemp more. He's the incumbent. People like him because he's not super Trumpy. So they're more willing to... Support him. Support him over Abrams versus maybe split ticket voting, where they're going to vote for Warnock and vote for Brian Kemp. That's not a crazy thing. It happens. It happens in Georgia. Um, Warnock is also performing better among a wider swatch of voters. So he's not only doing well among Black voters. He's also doing well amongst white voters and Asian voters and this that the other thing. Um, so whereas a lot of Abrams. Um, supporters, like voter base, is concentrated among black people, that is not necessarily the case for Warnock. Why is he more easily accessible to a larger group of people? I don't know. I think I think gender also probably plays a little bit of a role here. Um, I think Warnock is an incumbent. I think that he has a lot of institutional, like foundational support, like a lot of foundational respect. Um... And I think that maybe Stacey Abrams is a little bit more polarizing. I think maybe she appears that way because she is a woman. Whatever we can get into that. We already did get into that, but we can get into it more. Um, or she is more outspokenly progressive than Warnock. Potentially, that could be that could be the case. I haven't read too much about that 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 kind of uh, theory, but I'm sure that the kind of like, those are the main factors. Um, and so then the, the question becomes kind of that, that kind of point B there is why is she not doing that well amongst black voters? Um, and the answer there is likely due to um, black disillusionment with the government. Um, there's a lot of complacency among that very important voting block for Stacey Abrams. So the question now is not How do I convince black voters to vote for me? It's how do I mobilize black voters to actually go out and vote? How do you get them to the voting booth? Um, Because that's the main thing. Because you know, if every black voter voted for Stacey Abrams, she would win the race. Um, But the 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 point is that she actually needs to go out and get these people to show up to the polls, Um, and that's not a concern that. That Warnock necessarily has because he's not relying just on the black vote to win. So that's a very interesting thing. And that's, that's kind of informing her strategy over the next couple of weeks, trying to prove to people that they don't have to be disillusioned with the government. They don't have to be disillusioned with the party, and they can kind of gain that larger support through the party. If they do have elected officials that are going to be necessarily representing them, which is pretty interesting. And of course, Stacey Abrams herself is saying that the polling is wrong, which might be true as well. Who knows? We don't know anything. Everything, nothing is true until it happens. Polling is fake. <laughs> Whatever. Um, but last but not least, I'm going to try to go a little quickly through this. Um, we we'll talk a little bit about um, the larger kind of democratic strategy going forward through the last three weeks of election season. Um, so the big news coming out around strategy is that the DCCC, so the Democratic Congressional Campaign Coalition, is asking the DNC for a lot more money to fund races for the next couple weeks. Um, so the DNC is controlled by the president, is controlled by, like, the, you know, because the president has several roles, including being the leader of his party. Shout out to AP Gov Paul. Um, So the DNC is controlled by the president. He controls funding for the D-TRIP and also for the DSCC, which is just the Senate version of the D-TRIP. And so back in February, he gave $7.5 million to each group um, and then has funneled a lot of money into state parties as well that they could use kind of for whatever they saw fit. Um, And now, again, a couple weeks out from election day, the D-TRIP is asking the DNC to match the 16 million dollars that the RNC has given to the NRCC, which is the National Republican Campaign Coalition? Oh no, I don't know what any of these acronyms mean. Um, The NRCC, this cycle. Um, Basically their argument is, if you give us the amount of money that the other team has to play with, then we'll actually be able to win the house, we'll gain seats in the House. Um, All it takes right now is just funneling crazy amounts of money into these races and going absolutely, like, haywire. Um, Which is, you know, a a strategy. Likely not a bad strategy. It's just a matter of, you know, like, long term, we have a limited amount of money. Where are you putting that money for the greatest effect? Um, And it is like a, you know, it's a pretty huge amount of money. For the last month of the election, so you can imagine, sixteen million. If they get the sixteen million dollars, it'll be used over the next twenty. What did I say? Twenty-eight days, twenty-seven days. Um, so you can imagine, and you know, there's a there's like whatever twenty really super competitive races. You can imagine how much money is going into each of those individual races. Like things might happen. Things might move and grow. <laughs> um, so it's a lot of money, but what else is that money going to right now? And there's also kind of plenty of time to rebuild the war chest following oops, um, following election day. Um, the Democrats do, though, have less cash on hand than the Republicans right now, um, meaning there's some, you know, increased tensions about where to put those limited resources. And frankly, if I was in charge of the DNC, which I'm not, but I should be. No, I actually, I don't think I'd be very good at that. Um, I would be placing my bets with funding Senate races rather than continuing to fund House races. I understand the logic, though, around pumping tons of money into those House races right now at the end of the line. I'm just not necessarily sure that that is the best case um, or the, the best use of the money, considering that I think it might be just be too late for a lot of those House races, and th- the chips are just going to fall where they will at this point. Um, but that's just an interesting, an interesting strategic change. If they do decide, oh well, now that the polling has changed, we do potentially have a better chance of winning those House races. Now let's kind of capitalize on those on those opportunities. Um, the other thing I want to talk about is that the White House is transitioning now more into a political front. Um, at this point, it is we are on. It's October twelfth you can imagine, we are almost halfway through October. Oh my God, guys, time goes so fast. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I am so afraid of election day. I'm so, so scared. Okay. Um, yeah. So the White House is transitioning into more of a political front. It's where a month from election day, they're really trying to dig into those political operations at this point. So both Joe Biden and Jill Biden are going out to various DNC events across the country. Um, plus, a lot of other surrogates are going out and they're campaigning as well. Something I read that I thought was very fun and funny and interesting is that Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is the most highly sought after campaign surrogate uh, to go out and speak because of the um, infrastructure bill, which I just think is, is thrilling. Pete Buttigieg, he, I wonder what he's going to do. I'm so interested. But regardless, um, Pete Buttigieg... Labor Secretary Marty Walsh, who is my favorite of the secretaries, um, Interior Secretary Deb Holland, Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack, um, all very highly sought after people to go out and speak for those rank and file candidates. Um, And again, Biden's polls have been improving pretty considerably, which has been very helpful to people on the campaign trail. So now that we have this Last chunk of time, the, the, the communication strategy on a national level, on a local level, and then the, just the funding strategy are just completely pivotal. Um, and so it's, you know, it's entirely likely that big moves will be made over the next couple of weeks. And of course, voters have a short attention span. So for those couple people that aren't settled with their choices, it's entirely possible that their minds might get changed in the next couple of weeks. Um, I have more to say on that. But I already spent 33 minutes talking about it. So we're going to move on. Uh, so next we are going to talk about the Los Angeles City Council basically leak that happened. Um, so there was this big audio leak that happened um, with the president of the of the city council, a couple of different um, council members and some, some labor officials, just like a lot of kind of pretty high-powered people in LA city government. And basically, they were just talking, talking badly about a whole lot of people. Um, and of course, this audio of this whole conversation leaked um, and just to absolute uproar in, within kind of local government. And this is kind of a funny story because... I went, I was, like, on Twitter scrolling, as you do, and I kept seeing all these different statements from different, like, California elected officials, but I couldn't figure out what actually happened. Like, I was seeing all the and I was, like, racial insensitivity, like, what's, like, what's going on? Like, who did what in California this weekend? Um, And I had to, like, do a little bit of digging to actually (laughs) figure out what happened. I was, like, would you stop subtweeting and just tell me what happened? Um, But basically, so Nuri Martinez is the president or was the president of the L.A. City Council. Um, And so this audio leaked of her and a councilman making a lot of racist comments. So kind of the main source of contention was that um, they were making some pretty aggressive, racist comments against another councilman's son, so they called him, like, racial slurs in Spanish, and they um, kind of said that this, like, kind of threatened the kid and his misbehavior at a parade, and of course, like, the kicker of this is that the, the kid is the adopted black child of a gay couple, so they were, like, calling him racial slurs, they were saying that his parents didn't know how to parent, um, like, Just, like, a lot of, like, like like reading through some of these quotes as I was doing this research, I was like, oh, it just gets worse and worse. Like, it's totally fine, in my opinion, when you're talking in private with someone to be like, oh my gosh, that kid is so poorly behaved, like, blah, blah, blah. But then to, like, call him a monkey and, like, use racial slurs and kind of threaten to hit the kid, mm, just don't do that in public or in private. It's just because it's just not just don't do it. It seems pretty easy. Um, Especially when you're like a high level elected official in local government, you have to know that these things happen, like that things get recorded and that things get revealed. Um, Yeah, it's just upsetting. Um, And of course, the, the kid, not only was he, you know, the black child of a gay couple, He was also three years old when they were talking about him. So he's just a three-year-old kid who was running around at a parade. Leave him be. Leave him be. It's so sad. Um. So the, the kid's father, Councilman Bonin, um, calls for both officers to resign from office. Um, Martinez for actually making the comments and then all of the other council members who are um, caught on audio in the clip um, for basically just giving tacit approval of what they were saying by not saying anything against it. Um, and also they were just kind of racist in general, not only were they racist against this this poor three-year-old child, um, they also were like talking about ugly people in a predominantly Hispanic Koreatown neighborhood. Um, just like a lot of, uh, like again, if you read through some of these clips, they are brutal. Like they are so upsetting. Um, significantly, a lot of people have resigned since this. Um, Nori Martinez has resigned from her seat on the council. The um, president of the L.A. County Federation of Labor, extremely high-powered labor guy, um, has also since resigned, which is not great for kind of the labor movement in the area. Does open up a lot of kind of potential power moves there. Um, And everyone who's been involved in the situation, you know, has been like, oh, I'm so sorry for not, like, living up to the standards that we have set out for ourselves as elected officials, this, that, the other thing. Um, but it's also like, if you're saying things like that in private, that's that's who you are. That's what you believe. Don't pretend to be otherwise. Like, I don't know. I just think the, the what the way you act when there is no cameras, when there's no microphones, that's likely who you are in real life. Um, but regardless, it's also really interesting Thinking about like the long term ramifications of what this means for California politics, for LA politics. Um, kind of a dramatic tweet, in my opinion, but then again, I am not as well versed in like Los Angeles politics as other people. Um, but they this one tweet said, like, whoever leaked that audio completely changed the course of California history. And basically, what they're arguing is that a lot of the people that were in those clips were kind of the heir appearance of a lot of different um, kind of higher level um, positions. A lot of them were being thought of as like potential shoe ins for um, uh, Feinstein's senate seat when she inevitably has to give up her seat one way or the other. Um, and of course like the president of one of the most powerful labor unions in the city, like that's a p- fairly significant now power vacuum, which somebody else has to fill. Um, so we do have a lot of these different holes now. Somebody is going to rise up. Somebody is going to take control of that power. And how is that going to change policy in L.A.? How is that going to change then down the line now that we have to think about who who are the new people who are going to fulfill those positions how is that going to change kind of federal policy moving forward? There is kind of a domino effect from this this um, audio being leaked, which is pretty interesting. Um, and as I said before, and I'll say it again, I love a scandal. I love a leaked audio. I love drama. So this is fun. This is fun. I mean, obviously, it's like very upsetting for this poor child that now has to like confront racism and homophobia and all of these different things Um, and I'm very sorry to him for having to experience that however I love a leaked audio I love a disgruntled employee who leaks audio and causes a major power change in local government there's nothing better than a local government scandal, excellent excellent work for all involved um but now I'm going to take a sip of my my little coffee. Great. Um and now we're going to move on to a little bit more of a serious topic um and chat a little bit about what is going on in Iran. Um so this has been going on for a couple of weeks now. I haven't covered it um just because I kind of wanted to like do the research on it and make sure that I was like covering it correctly. Um, also just like didn't, you know, didn't didn't want it do it poorly. Um, but now I think it's time the time the time to talk about it a little bit. Um and of course, this is not this is another story that's gonna be ongoing. And so even though I'm only gonna kind of cover some of like the top line events that are going on right now, it's something that we'll continue to talk about um in the future. Of course, as with everything, nothing exists in a silo, nothing is static, everything is to change it all the time. Um, but basically mid-September Um, A 22-year-old Kurdish-Iranian woman named Masa Amini um, was detained by Iran's morality police for what they deemed to be inappropriate dress. Um, And basically, we're not sure exactly what happened, but within, there was basically three days where she was detained, she fell into a coma, and then ultimately died. Um, And we assume that it was because of mistreatment from the morality police and from the government. Um, and her death ultimately resulted in a wave of mass protests that are still going on, despite a pretty significant government crackdown. Um, it's likely not going to topple the government, at least according to like a couple of the reports I read. Um, but it has been kind of thought to be the this is a direct quote from this article the boldest challenge to the islamic republic since the 1979 revolution Um, and there's reports of these strikes spreading out not just from like civilian centers um, but also kind of going into the energy sector across the country Um, and tensions are particularly high in kurdish regions um, mostly because uh, amini was kurdish and also the fact that the kurdish minority In the country has been kind of oppressed, uh, according to several human rights groups. Um, That's of course something that the government has denied, but every government denies oppression. Um, And I think you know, can't can't take the government's word as law in situations like this one. Um, So again, these protests have been going on since mid September. I think I read that yeah, so it's going into like the fourth week right now, Um, and 185 people including 19 minors have been killed over the course of the protests hundreds have been injured th- injured thousands have been arrested by security forces um and then about 20 plus people a member 20 plus members of security forces have also been killed uh, according to the government um, and so it's just it's it's there's been a lot of clashes between protesters um, and between kind of police force, paramilitary forces across the country, which has resulted in a lot of a lot of violence and a lot of aggression that has resulted in injuries, everything like that. Um, and the bl- the government is blaming the violence on quote an array of enemies, including armed Iranian Kurdish dissidents. Which you know, there there certainly are dissidents, and they are you know, protesting. So, um, But then again, classifying them as enemies as opposed to, you know, protesters is an important distinction. uh, That they're, you know, they're trying to set themselves up as the ones that are in the right in this situation. Um, And again, as I mentioned, kind of the most recent big update here um, is that the protests have reached the energy sector. Um, And so right now we're unsure of whether or not the energy sector protests are actually like a separate protest Oh, there's a bug. A uh, separate protest against the um, their employers, basically, as like a protest against unpaid wage. So it's a strike, uh, kind of a labor strike in that sense. Um, or if it is actually a component of this larger strike that's going on. Um, the government has said that they're two separate things and that they're not joined together. Um, but it's also possible that Iranians have tried to hijack the workers' protest by chanting anti-government slogans during the protests to kind of blend them together and make it more of a um, kind of a larger thing. Because, of course, if you're attempting a protest like this, you have to go over go after economic interests in order for there to be kind of any good attention being paid to you. Um, so that's kind of probably where a lot of this that that is coming from. Um, Regardless of whether or not they're two separate things, or if they're one thing, um, there is, again, there's widespread protests going on. There's, it's affecting the education sector, it's affecting the energy sector, it's affecting kind of just general civilian life, general kind of civil disobedience going on across the country. Um, So whether or not they're kind of aiming for one thing or aiming for multiple things, there is widespread unrest across the country, across different sectors. Um, and so that's a, a fairly significant thing that it's not limited to to one area. It is going on all over the place, which is making, I think the government take this particular set of protests a little bit more seriously. Um, additionally, something that I think is very interesting is thinking about the role that social media is playing in all of this. Um, you know when you when we when you read about the Arab Spring when you talk about the Arab Spring something that was so important there was the role of social media and the reason that people thought it was going to be so effective um, was because of social media um, and because of the way that different people were able to kind of communicate with each other and talk to each other and and connect with each other kind of in real time and so in the same way there's been a lot of references that I have seen to social media in uh, the reports that I've read and that these different groups are kind of coming together, they're communicating with each other, they're planning protests um, with social media. And if you thought that the world was interconnected in 2010, in 2022, we are the most interconnected we've ever been. And so there is so much that can be done with the use of social media um, that I think it, there's this potential that these kinds of protests can go so much further because there's such a strong ability for organization through social media. Uh, and it's a lot harder to take that communication away now than it was in 2010, than it was 10 years before that, which is very interesting. Um, and so we do have this like, set of models and set of systems that have worked you know, marginally well in the past, and now we have the tools to make those systems so much better. And what role is social media now going to play in the effectiveness of this set of protests? It's kind of an interesting thing to, to think about and to talk about as we move forward. Um, and of course, there are potential long-term impacts from this set of revolutions. Again, the protests are going into the fourth week, which makes it pretty significant. Um, there, There's, you know, it's not, it's not certain that this is going to topple the government, but it's not not gonna happen, you know It's it's entirely possible That there will be You know, the, 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 the line I read That I now can't articulate in a way That's better than the one I read was that The collapse of the Islamic Republic Is not inevitable, but it is not inconceivable Which is pretty cool um, So the government Has started to acknowledge some mistakes And missteps, where they previously Have kind of never acknowledged Any kind of fault um, First of all, they've and they've also acknowledged that they're, quote, ready for a dialogue. Although I did read one thing and they're like, who are you going to have a dialogue with? Like, all the people that you killed and arrested? Like, there's there's nobody for you to talk to. Which is funny. But, you know, they they still said they're ready for a dialogue. They're acknowledging some kind of fault. Um, there's also these, um, there's some kind of, like, unverified footage, but... Um, People have said that uniformed police are marching with protesters as opposed to against them. Um, And so the unrest has gotten a lot closer to the governmental base than it has in the past. Um, And, you know, once the military and armed security forces turn against you, that's when you know that things are starting to get a little bit dire. Um, When the military are no longer protecting the elites, then you, you, you know that something has to change because it's about to get pretty serious um and so again we don't have like super great verification for these reports but if it is true then we do know that there is going to be some things that are going to be changing pretty fast um and if you do kind of like look at those revolutions from the past again once once the military force changes sides you know that there there, there, there are things that are going to start changing um Because the military is not going to protect those elites anymore. And what power do the elites have if not for kind of control over and justification for kind of control of the military? Um, And then also I think just kind of in general, I don't have time to get into all of this, but maybe I'll talk about it more next week, is that this kind of contributes to the overall sense of political unrest throughout the world. Um, So there's like, you know, in the United States, there's this very... I mean, in comparison, there's this, like, low-level distrust with the government, distrust with our election systems, so on and so forth. And, of course, that kind of transitions into unrest in Iran, potentially other areas of the Middle East, um, kind of knowing that there is this situation going on, potential movements that are going on, potential revolutions that are going on. And then that goes all the way into the escalation of conflict in Ukraine. That we've seen over the past couple weeks where now there's these new threats of nuclear war and of course we're always very uncertain we always kind of are in a place where there's a lot of vulnerability and political vulnerability and um things like that going on throughout the world but it does seem like right now there's a lot of different things that are kind of building 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 that might contribute to something more significant in the future hopefully there is no nuclear war I really, really hope that there's no nuclear war. That's, that's, that's my hot take of the day. Hope that there's no nuclear war. Um, but that is all I want to talk about with that. Now I'm going to bring it down a little bit. We're going to talk about our fun political story of the week. So it's not really that fun, but it is, however, kind of actually hilarious So two things on Dr. Oz. One amazing headline is, Dr. Oz follows up dog-killing report with speech in same room as Hitler's car. (laughs) I'm gonna say that one more time for emphasis. Dr. Oz follows up dog-killing report with speech in same room as Hitler's car. Let me say something, guys. It is so easy. To not do a speech in the same room as Hitler's car. It's so easy. It's so easy. Anyway, I just think that's great. I'm not even giving any context for that. I mean, the context is he was doing a political fundraiser. And in, like, the shot of him, there's a car in the background and the car was Hitler's car. I don't know why this place had Hitler's car. I don't know why they displayed it. I don't know why the advance team didn't say, get rid of Hitler's car from the background of this political fundraiser but they didn't. So here we are. Um, I also want to play uh, this fun new political ad from the Fetterman camp if it'll load uh, on the dog killing and of course you can't see the visuals but I'll link to it. It's very fun Uh, it's the Senate majority pack um, and they have done a multi-million dollar ad buy on the dog experiment story so i'm gonna play that for you now and then i'm gonna let you go for the week um, but enjoy this very fun new ad from from the dems she wasn't given a name only a number 6313 for 29 days she suffered in Mehmet Oz's lab leaking blood not eating struggling to breathe 29 days of unimaginable pain and suffering until Oz took her for the last experiment. Just one of 300 dogs killed in Oz's lab. Mehmet Oz is unfit to be Pennsylvania's senator. SMP is responsible for the content of this ad. So just like an absolute banger ad and they've got this cutest little dog this cute little beagle and she's so sad. Um Anyway, that's all I wanted to talk about today. Thank you guys all so much for listening in. Um, again, if you're interested in, you know, learning more about the show, you can follow on Instagram at Sheep Thrills Radio or on Twitter at Sheep Thrills GW. I will be posting this show on Spotify along with links to all the different stories and videos that I talked about um, later today or tomorrow. Um, but anyway, thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you have an excellent, excellent Wednesday, a great rest of your week, and I will talk to you all later.